0: Thanks to SwitchCraft for supporting this podcast. SwitchCraft is a mobile game with a unique blend of TV-worthy writing, choose-your-own-adventure-style narratives, and thousands of magical match-three levels. Download SwitchCraft for free and unlock the magic mystery. And today's show is also brought to you by our new sponsor, JennyKane.com. Create the space you'll never want to leave and get 15% off your first order. Go to J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E.com and use my code MSW at checkout.
1: No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to Mueller, She Wrote. I'm your host, A.G., Allison Gill. We have some important stories for you today uh, on Flynn's Farrah partner, Bijan Kian, a big loss in court for our old friend Oleg Deripaska, autocracy versus democracy and the parallels between Russia and Republicans in the United States, And yet another successful call uh, from the former guy to get Russia's help against political opponents. Uh, We also have a new indictment in the Fantasy Indictment League. And the connection to current events might not be overtly apparent at first, but I will tie it all together, I promise. And I'll do that with Pete Strzok. And with that, let's jump in with just the facts. All right, first up, a former business partner of Trump's national security advisor, Mike Flynn, scored a major legal victory Friday as a federal judge ordered a new trial for the Iranian-born businessman on charges that he acted as an unregistered foreign agent for Turkey as Donald ran for president in 2016. The ruling from U.S. District Court Judge Anthony Trenga in Alexandria, Virginia, was the latest lurch in a legal roller coaster ride for Bijan Rafikian, who was found guilty by a jury uh, following a 2019 trial, then had his two felony convictions thrown out by Judge Trenga, only to see the guilty verdicts reinstated by an appeals court last March. The decision from the Richmond-based Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals rejected Trenga's initial decision to toss out the jury verdicts, but left open a narrow path for Rafikian to win a new trial. Trenga's ruling Friday seized that opening, finding that the jury's guilty verdicts were against the great weight of the evidence and should be set aside. Quote, Rafikian's convictions are based on weak inferences, many built upon one another, drawn from narrowly framed circumstantial evidence, without a regard to a broader context that substantially undercuts any inculpatory inferences. That's from Trenga, who's an appointee of George W. Bush. Quote, the evidence as a whole allows only the weakest inference that Rafikian had agreed to operate as a Turkish agent subject to its direction or control, unquote. Now, during Rafikian's trial two and a half years ago, prosecutors argued that while working for Flynn's consulting firm, Rafikian arranged a $600,000 contact, uh, excuse me, contract from a Dutch company that was essentially a front for the Turkish government. Under the pact, Flynn Intel Group agreed to produce research, generate publicity, and lobby officials to take action against a Turkish-born cleric who went into exile in Pennsylvania in 1999, and that's Fatullah Gulen. We've talked about him extensively on the Mueller She Wrote show. Turkish president, Recep Erdogan, had accused and still accuses Gulen of backing attempts uh, of, for, of coups in Turkey and establishing a network of followers who are undermining the state. For years, Erdogan has unsuccessfully sought to persuade U.S. officials to expel Gulen or extradite him to face charges in Turkey. Gulen, who lives in Pennsylvania, has denied any involvement in coup efforts. And in the ruling Friday, Trenga emphasized that working in parallel with a foreign government and even coordinating some activities with that government does not make one an agent of that government under U.S. law. Quote, a person must do more than act in parallel with a foreign government's interest, pursue a mutual goal, or privately pledge personal alliance to such a government. That's in his 51-page opinion. Trenga also suggested the government's handling of Flynn's role and of classified evidence about his dealings with Turkey had complicated Rafikian's trial and may have led jurors to infer Rafikian's guilt, even though Flynn was not charged in the case. In December 2017, Flynn pled guilty to a false statement charge, as we know, brought by Mueller's team. Under Flynn's deal with the government, he agreed to cooperate with prosecutors and was promised he would not face charges in the Turkey-related probe. He was supposed to be the star witness uh, at Rafikian's trial. But, of course, the relationship between prosecutors and new attorney for Flynn, Sidney Powell, grew acrimonious in the weeks before the trial. And as a result, prosecutors changed course and dumped all plans to call Flynn as a witness. They instead labeled him a co-conspirator, allowing some evidence of his dealings with Rafikian to be admitted at trial. Quote, the government's relabeling of Flynn as a co-conspirator on the eve of trial was not based on any new evidence, but rather its assessment that Flynn's testimony would not advance its case against Rafikian. And that's also from Trenga. As the dispute with the government mushroomed, Flynn sought to back out of his guilty plea. And we know that a judge in Washington had not yet resolved the motion when Trump granted Flynn a full pardon. That was a couple weeks after the 2020 election. Just before Rafikian's trial, prosecutors unveiled a summary of classified evidence that Turkey was working through Flynn to influence then-candidate Trump during the 2016 election. The judge says that the summary, which was read to jurors, could be fairly read either as helpful to Rafikian's case or as essentially neutral, since it said nothing about Rafikian. But Tranga indicated he was troubled that the prosecutor's arguments about the summary seemed to turn the summary into a liability for Rafikian. (laughs) Trenga's decision isn't binding on other judges, but if others follow his reasoning, it could be harder for prosecutors to pursue similar cases against people working to achieve smaller policy goals to foreign governments, where evidence of explicit direction from those governments is murky. Prosecutors now face a decision about whether to follow through with another trial for Rafikian or drop the case or seek relief again from the Fourth Circuit. It's unclear whether the appeals court would entertain such an effort given the present posture of the case. Atrenga set a hearing for April 20th to set a possible new trial date, should the United States elect to proceed with a new trial. The spokesperson for the U.S. Attorney's Office in Virginia didn't respond to a message seeking so comment, and attorney for Rafikian also declined to comment. And in other news, Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska had an appeal to remove sanctions that the U.S. placed on him in 2018, and that was rejected, according to court documents. Deripaska was challenging the federal judge ruling from 2021, which dismissed a lawsuit the oligarch filed in response to sanctions. The mogul, who founded the aluminum giant Rusal, faced sanctions following Russia's annexation of Ukraine's Crimea territory in 2014 due to ties with Russian President Vladimir Putin, and that's according to documents from the U.S. Court of Appeals and the District of Columbia Circuit. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February, a litany of Russian oligarchs have had their assets frozen, their overseas properties raided, their yachts seized. Deripaska is not among the oligarchs sanctioned recently, but the sanctions from 2018 have devastated his wealth as a business person. And also his reputation, <laughs> reputation. Okay, the court said Deripaska's reasoning that the sanctions are uh, is that the sanctions are unlawful and that they don't lack merit. Quote: In short, there's no evidence that the government acted for reasons other than those it provided, much less that it stated the reasons were contrived. And that's according to the court document. The U.S. Treasury Department Office of Foreign Asset Control, that's OFAC, imposed sanctions on Deripaska because he allegedly acted on behalf of a senior Russian official and because of his ties to the Russian state energy sector. Quote, our review of the classified records confirm that OFAC has sufficient evidence for sanctions. That's the D.C. Circuit conclusion. OFAC also notes Deripaska has previously been investigated for money laundering, has bribed a government official, ordered the murder of a businessman, and has ties to Russian organized crime. A lawyer for the tycoon did not respond to Reuters' request for comment. Last month, squatters occupied his London mansion in protest over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That happened. Deripaska has spoken out against what Moscow has called a special operation in Ukraine. And this morning, a friend sent me this story from Anne Applebaum at The Atlantic. She writes, in February of 94, in the grand ballroom of the town hall in Hamburg, Germany, the president of Estonia gave a speech. Standing before an audience in an evening dress, Lennart Marie praised the values of the democratic world That Estonia aspired to join. The freedom of every individual, quote, the freedom of the economy and trade, as well as the freedom of the mind, of culture, of science, are inseparably interconnected, Uh, he told the uh, burghers of Hamburg. Quote, they form the prerequisite of a viable democracy. His country, having regained its independence from the Soviet Union three years earlier, uh, believed in these values. Quote, the Estonian people never abandoned their faith in this freedom during the decades of totalitarian oppression. Now, uh, Mary had also come to deliver a warning. Freedom in Estonia and in Europe could soon be under threat. Russian President Boris Yeltsin and the circles around him were returning to the language of imperialism, speaking of Russia as a primus inter pares, the first among equals in the former Soviet Empire. In 94, Moscow had already uh, was already seething with the language of resentment, aggression, and imperial nostalgia. The Russian state was developing an illiberal vision of the world and even then was preparing to enforce it. Mary called the democratic world to push back. The West should, quote, make it emphatically clear to the Russian leadership that another imperialist expansion um, will not stand a chance. At that, the deputy mayor of St. Petersburg, Vladimir Putin, got up and walked out. Mary's fears were that the time shared in all of the formerly captive nations of Central and Eastern Europe, uh, and they were strong enough to persuade governments in Estonia, Poland, and elsewhere to campaign for admission to NATO. And they succeeded because nobody in Washington, London, or Berlin believed that the new members mattered. The Soviet Union was gone, the deputy mayor of St. Petersburg was not an important person, and Estonia would never need to be defended. And that was why neither Bill Clinton nor G.W. Bush made much of an attempt to arm or reinforce the new NATO members. Only in 2014 did the Obama administration finally place a small number of American troops in the region, largely in an effort to reassure allies after the first Russian invasion of Ukraine. After. Nobody else anywhere in the Western world felt any threat at all. For 30 years, Western oil, well, I guess maybe Mitt Romney. (laughs) Um, For 30 years, Western oil and gas companies piled into Russia, partnering with oligarchs who had openly stolen the assets they controlled. Western financial institutions did lucrative business uh, in Russia as well, setting up systems to allow those same Russian kleptocrats to export their stolen money and keep it parked anonymously in Western property and banks. We convinced ourselves there was no harm in enriching dictators and their cronies trade we imagined would transform our trading partners wealth would bring liberalism capitalism would bring democracy and democracy would bring peace after all it had happened before following the cataclysm of 1939 to 1945 Europeans had indeed collectively abandoned wars of imperial terror or territorial conquest they stopped dreaming of eliminating one another instead the continent that had been the source of to the two worst wars in the world uh, and the world that had that, you know that the world had ever known created the european union an organized Um, an organization designed to find negotiated solutions to conflicts and promote cooperation, commerce, trade, etc. And because of Europe's metamorphosis, and especially because of the extraordinary transformation of Germany from a Nazi dictatorship into the engine of the continent's uh, integration and prosperity, Europeans and Americans alike believed they had created a set of rules that would preserve peace, not only in their own continents, but eventually the whole world. This liberal world order relied on the mantra of never again, Never again would there be genocide. Never again would large nations erase smaller nations from the map. Never again would we be taken in by dictators who use the language of mass murder. At least in Europe, we would know how to react when we heard it. But while we were happily living under the illusion that never again meant something real, the leaders of Russia, owners of the world's largest nuclear arsenal, were reconstructing an army and a propaganda machine designed to facilitate mass murder, as well as a mafia state controlled by a tiny number of men, and bearing no resemblance to Western capitalism. And for a long time, too long, the custodians of the liberal world order refused to understand those changes. They looked away when Russia pacified Chechnya by murdering tens of thousands of people. When Russia bombed schools and hospitals in Syria, Western leaders decided that it wasn't their problem. When Russia invaded Ukraine for the first time, they found reasons not to worry. Surely Putin would be satisfied by the annexation of Crimea. When Russia invaded Ukraine a second time, occupying part of the Donbass... They were sure he would be sensible enough to stop. Even when the Russians, having grown rich on the kleptocracy we facilitated, we facilitated, uh, bought Western politicians, funded far-right extremist movements, and ran disinformation campaigns during American and European democratic elections, the leaders of America and Europe still refused to take them seriously. It was uh, just some posts on Facebook, right? So what? We didn't believe we were at war with Russia. We believed instead we were safe and free, protected by treaties, by border guarantees and by the norms and rules of the liberal world order. But with this, in the third and more most brutal invasion of Ukraine, the vacuity of those beliefs was revealed. The Russian president openly denied the existence of a legitimate Ukrainian state. Quote, Russians and Ukrainians, he said, were one people, a single whole. His army targeted civilians, hospitals, and schools. His policies aimed to create refugees so as to destabilize Western Europe. Never again was exposed as an empty slogan, while a genocidal plan took shape in front of our eyes right along the European Union's eastern border. Other autocracies watch to see what, would, what we would do about it. For Russia isn't the only nation in the world that covets its neighbor's territory, that seek to destroy entire populations, that has no qualms about whether to use mass violence. North Korea can attack South Korea at any time and has a nuclear weapons that can hit Japan. China seeks to eliminate the Uyghurs as a distinct ethnic group and has imperial designs on Taiwan. We can't turn the clock back to 1994 to see what would have happened had we heeded uh, Mary's warning but we can face the future with honesty. We can name the challenges and prepare to meet them. There is no natural liberal world order, and there are no rules without someone to enforce them. That's one point. Um, Another is, if we don't have any means to deliver our messages to the autocratic world, no one will hear them. Another point, and she goes into very big detail on these points, so I really recommend you read this article. Trading with autocrats promotes autocracy, not democracy. Very good point. We need a dramatic and profound shift in our energy consumption, and not only because of climate change. Thank you. Uh, take democracy seriously. Teach it, debate it, improve it, defend it. Maybe there is no natural liberal world order, but there are liberal societies, open and free countries, that offer a better chance for people to live useful lives than closed dictatorships do. And then she goes on to say, Perhaps in the aftermath of this crisis, we can learn something from the Ukrainians. For decades now, we've been fighting a culture war between liberal values on the one hand and muscular forms of patriotism on the other. The Ukrainians are showing us a way to have both. As soon as the attacks began, they overcame their many political divisions, which are no less bitter than ours, and they picked up weapons to fight for their sovereignty and their democracy. They demonstrated that it's possible to be a patriot and a believer in an open society, that a democracy can be stronger and fiercer than its opponents precisely because there is no liberal world order, no norms and no rules. We must fight ferociously for the values and the hopes of liberalism if we want our open societies to continue to exist. Again, I urge everyone to locate this article in The Atlantic and Applebaum, share it widely with everyone you know. We'll be right back with the Fantasy Indictment League and some input from Pete Struck. Stay with us. Hey everybody, it's AG. And I know from experience that decorating a home can be a bit challenging. As you know, uh, in the past couple years, i gutted my entire house, got rid of everything and got brand new and better everything. And Jenny Kane has really helped me out. They have everything you need, from classic furniture to sophisticated accent pieces. There's something for every room, style and taste. JennyKane.com is sponsoring Miller She Wrote, and they're offering you 15% off your first order when you use code MSW at checkout. There's an effortless California elegance to Jenny Kane and the Jenny Kane home collection, and, and they have the perfect pieces for any room, whether it's a candle or a throw or a sofa. Uh, You know I have the alpaca throw, and now I've got my eye on the Brentwood Boucle chair. It's a handcrafted accent chair, an ivory wool boucle that's perfect for your bedroom or living room or your den, it would go in my bedroom. To get exclusive perks and benefits like birthday surprises and early access to new launches, Join Jenny Kane Rewards and you can earn up to 10% back on all your purchases. Join today, you'll get 100 points right off the top. Get 15% off your first order when you use code MSW at checkout. That's 15% off your first order at Jenny Kane, J E N N I K A Y N E dot com, and use promo code MSW. And today's show is also brought to you by my new favorite game. It's called Switchcraft. Um, It's absolutely stunning. The visuals, the storyline, the characters. And you know, most match-three games are are pretty fun, but they're also, a lot of them are the same. Occasionally the themes or characters might change, or the colors, but overall the format remains the same, and there's no compelling story to keep you going. Until now, Switchcraft is a fresh take on a match-three game. Your actions and your choices reveal the story of a beautiful, magical, and gripping graphic novel. With Switchcraft, you'll find TV worthy writing, a choose your own adventure style narrative, and thousands of magical match three levels. The art is exquisite. The characters are very interesting. I love Switchcraft's originality. The story includes over 85 characters from a variety of cultural backgrounds, as well as differently abled and LGBTQ characters. Thousands of levels await you as the story unfolds, and this game never gets boring because the storyline is so captivating. I want to keep playing to see what happens next. This story begins with the disappearance of your best friend from wizarding school, and you need to solve the mystery of her disappearance using your Magical Match 3 skills. It's awesome, so download Switchcraft for free now and unlock the magical mystery. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the Fantasy Indictment League. I'm going to be indicted! No, wait, it's going to be a... Indicted! Honey, dick. Indicted! Honey. I... I'm going to be indicted! They can't. It's going to be okay. Just calm down. I can't calm down. I'm going to be indicted. All right. A Maryland man has been indicted with willful transmission and retention of national defense information, that's NDI, in an indictment unsealed today in the District of Maryland. According to court documents, as an employee of the National Security Agency, NSA, Mark Robert Unkenholz, 60, of Hanover, held a top secret SCI clearance and had lawful access to classified information relating to national defense that was closely held by the government. As detailed in the indictment, national security information is classified as top secret, secret, or confidential. Only individuals with the appropriate security clearance could have authorized access to such classified national security information. All classified information can only be stored in an approved facility and container. I like that sentence. All classified information can only be stored in an approved facility and container. So not Mar-a-Lago. Not a filing box. According to the 26-count indictment, on 13 occasions between February 14, 2018 and June 1, 2020, Unkenholz, lawfully having possession of access to and control over NDI, which he had reason to believe could be used to injure the uh, the United States or to the advantage of any foreign nation, he willfully transmitted that information to another person who was not entitled to receive it. The indictment alleges that the information Unkenholz transmitted was classified at the secret and top-secret SCI levels, and that Duncan Holtz transmitted the classified information using his personal email address to the other person's private company email address. The person receiving the information held a top-secret SCI clearance from April 2016 until about June 2019 while employed at a company referred to in the indictment as Company 1. From July 2019 until January 2021, the person worked for a company referred to as Company 2 and was not authorized to access or receive classified information. The indictment alleges that Unkenholz's personal email address and the company email of the person receiving the information were not authorized storage locations for classified NDI. Unkenholtz allegedly retained the classified NDI within his personal email address. And joining me to discuss the Unkenholtz indictment is 26-year FBI and Army vet and author of the New York Times bestseller, Compromise, Peter Strzok. Hey, Peter, how's it going?
1: Hey, good. How are you?
0: Good. Uh, lots of really big justice news coming out in the last couple of days. But I wanted to talk to you about something that no one's really talking about, because that's kind of how I operate. And that's this indictment. This 13-count indictment shows that our Department of Justice does arrest people who mishandle top-secret documents when they have the evidence to do so. Uh, and I want to ask you because, you know, you did the you've you've been a part of a couple of classified document mishandling situations in the past. <laughs> and I wanted to ask you about differences, maybe in similarities between a case like this and how Donald Trump has allegedly mishandled classified information uh, in that whole thing with the National Archives and the 15 boxes of material he took from the White House or whether we can even draw any similarities here.
1: Yeah, I would hesitate to draw any similarities. I mean, looking through the uh, the press release and the indictment, it's it's clear that the person, the two people who are talking to each other, there appears to at least be a legitimate work connection. Now, whether this was pursuant to a legitimate work purpose isn't clear. But, you know, the, the however you say it, Uncle Holtz, um was the NSA employee, did apparently have lawful possession of the classified information, had a job where a component of that work was interfacing with private industry. The person, she, we know, is um, they don't give an identity, but they do give a pronoun. We know that she had a clearance, at least at the beginning of this, and was working in uh, a job where she needed that clearance. So it doesn't say that their interaction was part of or extended from an official relationship as part of his work. But at least at the beginning, when the information was exchanged, it was between two clearance holders. And then later she moved to a position where she didn't have a clearance. Now, underlying all this, it appears it was not done. It was not being done on an authorized system. In other words, this was not taking place over JWICS or Cipernet, which are the, you know, the systems, the automated systems, which are authorized to transmit TS information or secret information. But there's a lot we don't know. Uh, We don't know whether, you know, clearly because this person had a clearance, they weren't somebody at Kaspersky Labs in Russia. They weren't somebody working at a French antivirus company outside of Paris. They weren't, you know, they were somebody who had, at least at one point in time, a U.S. government security clearance. So I would hesitate to draw a lot of any further inferences from that other than to say, at first blush, this strikes me as very much kind of a run-of-the-mill sort of mishandling Uh, case that the FBI investigated and would prosecute. It's interesting. She is not identified by name, nor has she been charged. Uh, It's not clear whether or not she will be charged. And, you know, there are a number of reasons. One, she might be facing charges in the future. Two, she might not have understood that the information she was receiving was classified, that they could only demonstrate that on the one of the party sides. But I don't think, again, more information may come out. But at first blush, this doesn't strike me as particularly um, notable other than seems like a righteous case. Seems like it should have been investigated. To your question about whether or not to apply it to Trump, I, I, would, I would not do that. Um, I think there are very different circumstances here. You know, it is Trump is complicated because he was at one point in time the president, he had the authority to declassify information. He continually got into trouble saying he was going to declassify things and then not doing it and led to litigation because of that while he was still president. Certainly, you know, and this came up in the context yesterday, somebody asked a question on, on Twitter about, I hope Trump doesn't have a clearance anymore. Well, presidents don't have a clearance, right? Access to classified is a power that comes with the presidency. When you're elected a president, you have that power and authority to have classified information. And in fact, the president is the one who promulgates, who gets a clearance. So the clearance system is not something the president is ever subjected to. It is something that the president administers. You know, obviously he delegates that down to the people who grant it. But when the president just as it comes with the presidency, it's taken away. So the minute Joe Biden is sworn in, or whoever the next president in is sworn in, the prior president loses their lawful access to classified. As a but, the current courtesy. president
0: can give these classified briefings to former presidents if they so choose.
1: Right. And by typically by courtesy in the past, most presidents extended that courtesy to prior presidents, you know, if they needed intelligence briefing. I know, you know, the, the last time I I went up to Kennebunkport was while I was stationed up at Boston. It was in the context of briefing something to the Bush family that involved some classified information, but early, I think it was January, like within weeks of being inaugurated, Biden said, I think essentially Trump is a threat. He has no need for access to classified information and we're not gonna be providing him any briefings. So given that when all this material is found at Mar-a-Lago, it isn't being, to the extent it is still classified, Trump does not have a clearance granted to him by the cognizant authority, which in this case trickles down from the president of the United States, now Joe Biden, he doesn't have the authority to retain it. But it gets really complicated in terms of That isn't, the fact pattern of that is nothing like a routine, unlawful retention or mishandling case. And so, you know, do I think there's potential criminal exposure there? Sure. Do I think it is as likely as not that Trump was, you know, he, people were saying, you know, they're passing around. I think I read somewhere that, you know, uh, 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 is it Ashley Biden, Biden's daughter, you know, somebody at some fundraiser down in Florida, they're passing around copies of his diary, her diary. I have Every expectation that if there was stuff in that pile that Trump thought was, oh, gee whiz, neat, cool, and whatever reason, that he might be showing it off down at Mar-a-Lago to impress somebody because he had no sense of any of the national security implications of what the material might be other than it's kind of cool. So, you know, I hope there, I, I hope there's an investigation going on. I would not be surprised if there were, you know, and is potential criminal exposure there, but I would not, I would not analogize these two things, these two cases at all.
0: Yeah, I to- totally understand. There's really not much we can analogize it with because we haven't had an ex-president you know, that I can think of that has done anything like this. So, And that would be kind of the only thing we could draw parallels with uh, because of the status of the president of the United States being able to declassify documents. Uh, and then, of course, having to go through the unprecedented task of Yes, but there's a process. But yes, does it apply to a president? But yet, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But for the first time, that's something that somebody's going to have to have to uh, go through. And I know that a lot of times prosecutors don't like to be the first time uh, people They, you know they shy away from that if there's no precedent. And that's what I think uh, you know a lot of people are worried about with regards to any potential crimes that the former president may have committed.
1: And that's where he lives, right? I mean, he lives in that area of like, nobody's ever done this before, and it really wasn't intended at all for this, but Trump's going to push into that and push his luck in advances and slimy slimy little interest to like, whether it's everything from, you know, real estate valuations to retain classified information to, you know, meeting and calling on foreign adversaries to dig up dirt on his political opponents, I mean, he'll just, you know, find that little... Gray area of the law where every moral boundary is w- well on one side, and just charge right past that and dare somebody to correct or to force them to do differently. And more often than not, finds that there's no pushback, so he keeps pushing. And this, I don't think this is any different.
0: No, yeah, I'm interested to see what happens with those uh, White House call logs that look like they've been tampered with. Um, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see what happens there. And you know, because then you have to be like, well, did he direct it and it, was it somebody else? Will there be a fall guy? Was it even tampered with? Did somebody, was somebody just stupid? Or can somebody claim they were just stupid and didn't know, had to say, I didn't, I didn't know you had to put that in there? Uh, who, who knows where it'll go, but it, it'll be interesting. And then that's, I think, where we're in unprecedented territory.
1: Yeah. And talk about, you know, one note, and I know you got to go and I got to go too. But like I, the times I've done investigations at the White House. And primarily it was most of them involved like NSC staff or people at the old executive office building, which is an Eisenhower building. Not a, it's part of the White House complex, but it's not in the building you think of in the White House. But doing investigation there is is rare and it's it it is complex for a lot of reasons because you start jumping on top of all kinds of everybody's equities that aren't used to dealing with investigators. I mean, you have the a lot of the White House communication systems are run by the Department of Defense. You have the Secret Service as an equity that's involved. You have the presidency and all the the, the, the privileges that the institution of the presidency and DOJ want to maintain. So, you know, whereas an investigator would ordinarily run into an, you know, we're investigating somebody at DOE, you go there, you find the systems administrator and the people who run the telecoms at DOE and say, hey, we need the phone logs for this, you know, this office and this phone and this computer. Doing it that at the White House in the context of the president, talk about uncharted territory. I mean, I, I can't imagine the complexity of that. And so I hope I hope it's going on.
0: Yeah, and I think we're starting to get some clues that it, it might. But we'll see. We will see. Because right? like I said at the top of this investigation before I hit record, if you've seen one investigation, you've seen one investigation. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Everybody cool. pick up Compromised, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Pete Strzok, follow everyone follow him on Twitter. Important follow. Thanks. Thank you. All right, and with that, everyone, my fantasy indictment team largely remains the same. It's George Nader superseding. Rudy, Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Matt Gates, L.A. Key, Jacob Engels, but I'm going to add Enrique Tarrio, superseding seditious conspiracy charges, along with Bertino and Stewart. Those are the two other Proud Boys that were raided the same day Tarrio was arrested. We will see what happens. Um, hoping something comes through with Matt Gates pretty soon. We now know that the Department of Justice is investigating the 1-6 insurrection beyond just the boots on the ground, so that's good news too. We might see more indictments coming down the line. Check out the latest MSW book club, which is out today. And of course, I'll be back with the beans tomorrow and Dana will be back Tuesday morning with me. So until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, take care of your mental health and vote blue over Q. I've been AG and this is Muller She Wrote. (laughs) S. W. Okay. Media.